Right, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're continuing our series in 1 Peter this morning. While you're turning there, I recognize that it's, uh, it's middle of November. Now, when I was a student at A&M, when I was in engineering, middle of November, that's always when I would start having this recurring nightmare every night. Uh, it's, it's getting close to finals time. So in my dream, I would, uh, I, would, I would be receiving my finals schedule and looking over the tests that I have coming up. And, and, and surprisingly, I would see that I, I would have a final for, for modern European literature uh, on, the exam, or on my list of exams. And I think about it, I think, well, I'm not in that class. I never signed up for that class. And then I remember, wait a minute. No, I did sign up at the beginning of the semester, and I totally forgot about that class. And I never went to any class periods. I never did any of the reading, never did any of the homework. I don't even know who the professor is, and I have an exam in it tomorrow. And, and I would get in a panic. I would start to sweat, and that would wake me up. And all of a sudden, I would realize just the horror of the thought of being unprepared for a really significant test. It would actually take me like a few moments to calm myself there sitting in my bed and thinking, wait a minute, Blake. You're an engineer. You would never sign up for modern European literature. Uh, You don't have that class. It's going to be okay. You're all right. What terror I felt at the thought of being completely unprepared for a major exam. Well, Scripture is very clear that every one of us faces a very significant test in the near future. All of us will stand before God for judgment. All of us will be tested by God. For some of us, that test is going to come sooner. For some of us, that test is going to come later. But for all of us, for all believers, we will stand before God one day for judgment. Most serious test we'll ever face in this life. Paul talks about that test. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now what Paul is looking at here is the judgment seat of Christ. And and let me make it clear, this test has nothing to do with whether or not you get into heaven or not. If you're standing at the judgment seat of Christ, you're already in heaven. That's, that's where the seat is located. Your eternal destiny is already settled. If you're standing at the judgment seat of Christ, you're a believer. You've entered heaven through faith alone. You have eternal life. But now you stand before Jesus Christ for judgment. That's the first thing that will happen to us when we get to heaven. First thing, we enter into heaven. We go before the judgment seat of Christ. And he evaluates our lives, notice, based on deeds based on what we have done, whether good or bad. And the outcome of that judgment is either reward and honor if we pass his test or loss and regret if we don't. Very serious test that all of us have in store for us. Now, God hasn't revealed when we will take the test. We don't know when it's coming. For some of us, it's far in the future. For some of us, it's not. Actually, Jesus could return and we'd all face that test immediately. We don't know the day of our test, but we do know what's on it. Don't you, if, you, if you're in college, you know this. The best professors are always the ones that tell you ahead of time what's going to be on the exam. Actually, my favorite professors were the ones who didn't just tell you. They pulled out and gave you a study guide that told you everything you needed to know for their exam. That's awesome. I love that. That's a good professor. Now, God is the best teacher imaginable, so he doesn't leave us in the dark. God has revealed to us exactly what he expects of us. If you want to pass his test, the judgment seat of Christ with flying colors, God has told you exactly what you must do now to pass the test then. Actually, throughout scripture, God gives us 
what, what could best be called a study guide. Often in many passages, a, a study guide that prepares us for that day of judgment. And that's exactly what, get, what we get in this morning's passage. First Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 is a study guide that God has given us in grace to show us and prepare us to be ready for that day of judgment. When we stand before our Savior, God has laid out for us, these are the things that you must do to pass that test with flying colors. Now in this passage, Peter lays out for us four characteristics or four practices that must be true of our lives if we want to please God on that day. If we want to pass the test of the judgment seat of Christ, the four things in our passage this morning must be true of our lives. So let's jump right in. Let's look at this. If we want to pass the test that is in store for us, here's what we must do. First characteristic that must be true of us is found in verses 1 through 6. Read with me, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Now, a little confusing stuff here in in these six verses. A little bit of a challenging passage, but here's what it boils down to. Here's the big idea. If you want to pass the test of the judgment seat of Christ, the first thing that needs to be true of you in this life is that you steadfastly resisted temptation. That's the big idea of these first six verses. Now, let me walk you through it. Three things that Peter lays out, sub-points here. In the first two verses, Peter is trying to convince us that we all need to resolve to follow the example of Jesus Christ. That's actually what verses 1 and 2 are about. Notice it begins, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, he's the example, therefore, Arm yourselves. That's an interesting word in Greek. It's actually a military term. It means to put on armor. Peter is saying you face a battle in this life. This life is warfare, whether you realize it or not. You need to be prepared for that battle by armoring yourself, putting on the armor. And here's what the armor is. Arm yourselves also with the same purpose or the same resolve. In other words, you need to arm yourself by taking up the same purpose or resolve that Jesus Christ had. You need to look at life like he looked at life. You need to follow or practice his resolve. And here's what that resolve is. It's the rest of the verse. Arm yourselves also with the same purpose, which is the same resolve, which is he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Peter is challenging us to adopt the same resolve of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, throughout his earthly life, resolved to resist temptation no matter what the cost. He committed himself to walk in obedience with God, even if that obedience brought suffering. That's Peter's point. We we demonstrate that we are willing to resist sin when we choose to suffer for it. When we're willing to undergo suffering for the sake of obedience, that proves that we're willing to follow the example of Jesus Christ. That was the example that Jesus uh, lived out throughout his earthly life. I'll just point you to one of many examples, the temptation. 
You may have read that account before. Early, early in Jesus' ministry, the Holy Spirit leads him out into the wilderness for 40 days to fast. And throughout that time, Satan tempts him. But we have a record of the final temptation, the last day of temptation. Satan hits him with three final attacks. Now, do you remember what those three temptations are? First one, Jesus, you haven't eaten in 40 days. You're crazy hungry. Use some of that supernatural power you claim to have to turn stones into bread and feed yourself. Satan is tempting Jesus to escape the pain, the suffering of hunger by using his supernatural power to turn stones into bread. Seems like a good idea, doesn't it? But wait a minute. It was God who led Jesus to fast. It was the Holy Spirit who led him into the wilderness to fast. So Jesus knows it's God's will that I don't do that. It's God's will that I remain hungry. And so Jesus resists that temptation. Second temptation, Satan takes Jesus to the the brow of the temple. That's the top of the temple in Jerusalem, the highest point in all of the city. And he says, Jesus, throw yourself off the temple, knowing that God's angels will catch you in midair and gently lift you to the ground. Now, why does Satan tempt Jesus to do that? I'm not really tempted by that. Really, there's no point in my life when I want to go climb on a big building and jump and see if angels catch me. That doesn't sound exciting to me. But, But here's what Satan is really saying. He's saying, Jesus, you know, and and actually Satan quotes Old Testament scripture, you know that as the Messiah, God will not allow you to die before the proper time. He will catch you in a miraculous way with his angels. And guess what? Everyone will see it. That's why they go to the Temple Mount, most public spot in the whole nation. He's saying, Jesus, I want you, I challenge you, I tempt you to become famous right now. You jump off this building, God's angels will catch you and everyone will see it. You'll be the most popular guy in this whole country. Everyone will think you're awesome. In other words, Jesus, you can escape the difficulty of ministry, the ridicule, the rejection that's coming. If you follow the Father's plan, you're gonna experience a lot of suffering, a lot of pain. You can bring all that to an end right now. Just jump and you'll be famous. But Jesus knows, yeah, God wants me to be famous, but not this way. This isn't the plan of God. So he says, no. Third temptation, what's that? Remember? Satan takes Jesus to a high hill and he shows him all of the kingdoms of the earth. And he says, all of these I will give to you. I will give you authority over all the nations of the earth. All you have to do is bow to me and worship. Now, what is Satan doing here? Well, actually, Satan is offering something to Jesus that really does belong to Jesus. Jesus knows it's the will of my father that all nations belong to me. That's the father's will. But, but the father's will leads through the cross. God the Father planned that Jesus would inherit all the nations by suffering crucifixion. Satan's saying, you know what? I'll give it to you easy. I'll give you all the nations right now. All you gotta do is bow. You can avoid that whole cross thing. You can avoid that whole rejection and trial and beating and all that. I'll give it to you right now. It was Satan's to give. Satan is the ruler of this world. But Jesus knew, yes, it's the Father's will that I have authority over all the earth, but not this way. That would be idolatry to worship Satan. That would be sin. So Jesus rejects Satan's offer. Over and over again throughout Jesus' life, he resolved to obey God no matter what the cost. That's the same resolve that we're to have. If you want to pass the test of the judgment seat of Christ, then you need to adopt Christ's mentality towards sin. You need to choose to reject sin, to abstain from sin, no matter what it costs you, no matter how difficult it is. Now, in the next two verses, Peter lays out what the cost will be for us. He challenges us to pay the price for our obedience. Look with me, starting in verse 3. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Let's, Let's pause there. 
Peter tells them that the, the price that you're going to pay for obedience is first, you need to be willing to live without all of these sins. You need to be willing to live without all of these things that he's just listed in verse 3. Now, actually, the verse starts with a, a bit of sarcasm. The time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out these things. No, what Peter means is really, you spent more than enough time in this sin. These are sinful things. These should have never characterized your life. You need to be done with them. You need to do away with these things. And then he lists off five things, and and the first four things fit together. The first four things talk about unrestrained desire for food, drink, sex, and parties. That's the first four. Food, drink, sex, parties. Unrestrained desire to pursue those things. The fifth one is a little bit different. Abominable idolatries. It's the idea of of participating in pagan worship. Pagan worship in Greek mythology was actually full of sexual immorality. That's what Peter is hitting at. Now, the challenge here is Peter calls out these sins and tells them to abstain from these things. What, What we may not realize is that by naming these five things, Peter is challenging them to shut the door on all of the most popular forms of entertainment in the Roman world. Okay, if you're going to obey verse 3, then that means you, you can't go to the theater. That was their TV in the ancient world because in, in Roman Empire, the, the theater was full of immorality. Okay, and it means that, that you can't go to the most popular sporting event in the Roman world. What's that? That's, that's gladiatorial fights. Where bloodshed is celebrated, now that that doesn't fit the will of God, so you can't go there. And and you can't participate in the drunken parties that were as popular in Rome as they are in College Station. You you can't go there, that door is closed to you. And you can't participate in the sexual immorality that is rampant in the Roman Empire. From one end of the Roman Empire to the other, sexuality permeated all of business and all of religious life. It was incredibly common, and Peter's saying you've got to shut the door on all of that. In other words, Peter's saying you have to shut the door in your life to all the things that your world calls fun. That's really the idea. In the Roman world, all of these things were what people lived for. That's what they desired above all else. That was fun for them. And Peter's saying you can't go there. All of that is off limits to you. That has a lot of parallels to life for us today, doesn't it? We live in a world that really lives for sexual gratification, for the pursuit of of food and wine and parties and all of these things. That's what our world is oriented around. When I was a mechanical engineering student here at A&M, I spent a lot of time in the engineering physics building in this little room called the computer lab. And I don't know if we've got any engineers out there. I don't even know if the room is still there. I've been back in College Station for seven years now. I've been all over campus. I won't go to that building because it has such horrible memories, particularly that room. The, the engineering computer lab has no windows and there's no artwork on the wall and there's no music playing and there's no coffee. There's no snacks. It's filled with sad, depressed pasty white engineers hunched over keyboards working hour after hour after hour. I was there. I was one of them. It's dank. It's, it's depressing. And, and, and every one of us had a different way to cope with that horrible place. And for a lot of my fellow engineering students, it was by living for the weekends. I remember distinctly working on projects and hearing the, the students around me talking about their exploits the previous weekend or what they had coming. And I was always amazed. Most of them were spending more money on hard liquor than they were on their textbooks. Seriously. They were living for parties. They were living for getting drunk. They were living for sexual immorality. All the things that seemed fun to them, that's what they lived for. That was life for them. Well, that's what you see every time you turn on the TV. Most, most shows, most sitcoms are oriented around the idea of pursuing sexual gratification and the pleasures of this world. Think about all the big sitcoms, Seinfeld, Friends, 30 Rock. They're, they're all oriented around sex and parties. 
You, you see people go to work, but work is just a necessary evil, so you have money for the other things, because that's life. The sinful pleasures of the flesh, that's what this world lives for. And Peter's saying, don't go there. Peter's saying, whatever time you've spent pursuing the, the sinful pleasures of this world, that's more than enough time. Abstain from that. Okay, but if you abstain from those things, it's going to cost you. That's verse 4. Look at verse 4. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. It's interesting wording here. Uh, same excesses of dissipation, literally same flood of sin. The idea is, is, that, is that the world is running headlong after the, the pleasures that are available in this world, the pleasures of sin. They're running headlong for those pleasures, and they can't believe that we don't. They're shocked when we willingly, freely choose not to go to a party, not to get drunk, not to have sex outside of marriage. They can't believe it. When we say that we're not going to give in to lust and we're going to have only one sexual partner our entire lives, they're shocked at that. They can't believe that. They ridicule that. When we choose not to get drunk ever, they can't believe that. They're shocked by that. When we choose to spend our time in prayer, reading the Bible, serving people rather than going to a party, that shocks them. They can't believe that. So they malign you. They say bad things about you. They're just shocked. They actually, they look at our lives and what do they conclude? When the world looks at Christians, what do they think of us? They think, wow, what boring people. They are wasting their lives. All the pleasures that this world offers and they're saying no to that. What a waste. What, what simple-minded fools we are. You're wasting your life because you're not enjoying the sinful pleasures of this world. Well, are, are they right? In obeying God and saying no to all the fun things in life, are we wasting our life? Are we foolish? Well, Peter answers that question. Next two verses, verses five and six, he wants us to understand and believe that obedience is absolutely worth the price. Look at verse five. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Now what Peter is doing in these two verses is he is, he is challenging and silencing a common misconception in the Roman world. And in the Roman world, they believed in Greek mythology. And in Greek mythology, when a person dies, they go to Hades. Everyone goes to Hades when they die. Whether you're good or bad, you all end up in the same place. And if you're really bad, like if you kill a lot of people, it's a little worse than if you didn't. But it's bad for everyone. Hades was a dark and depressing place. That's what they thought was the fate for everyone. Well, that's, that's actually not completely different than, than the two most popular conceptions of the afterlife today. That's uh, one, atheism. There is no afterlife. This life is all you get, then everyone dies and it's all over. You, you just rot in the ground, that's it. Uh, or some generic belief that, that everyone outside of guys like Hitler ends up in some kind of heavenly place. And we don't really know what it is, but it's going to be all right. Okay, those are the most popular beliefs today. That's what the world believes. Either this life is all you get or everyone outside of Hitler ends up in some place called heaven. Okay, now, if any of those views are right, then let's be honest with ourselves. Then we are wasting our life. If any of those views are right, then why in the world are we paying the price to obey Jesus Christ? Paul actually has that view. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If there is no resurrection, if there is no accountability to God after this life, if there is no reward for righteousness, then just go eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But Paul and Peter don't believe that. Paul and Peter know there is a life after this one. 
Death is not the end of the story for us. And your experience in the next life will be different based on how you live this life. The righteous will be rewarded. The wicked will be punished. They're very clear. And Peter's point, what he's trying to get across to us is wickedness will be judged and righteousness will be rewarded. That's his point in verse five. All people will stand before God for judgment. God is the judge of the living and the dead. Even after you died, you are still accountable to God. He will pay back wickedness. He will reward righteousness. That's what God always does, whether you're alive or dead. He makes a similar point in verse six. Now, verse six kind of sounds weird. We kind of struggle with that verse. What in the world is going on in verse six? To a lot of people, it sounds like maybe after Jesus died, but before he rose from the dead, he went to hell and preached the gospel to those who had died. That's not what's going on here. Actually, verse six is really straightforward, really simple. What Peter is talking about is Christians who had already died by the time that Peter wrote this letter. So remember, he's, he's writing in maybe mid-50s to 60 AD, quite a bit of time after Jesus died. So there are people who had heard the gospel, the gospel was preached to them, and they believed it, and then they chose to follow Jesus. They chose to obey Jesus and resist sin, and then, like all people, they died. They passed away. And Peter knows that in the eyes of the world, those believers who have died look like fools. They look like they wasted their lives. They could have enjoyed so much pleasure and now they're dead like everyone else. In the eyes of men, they were fools. That's actually what he's talking about in the verse when he says, they are judged in the flesh as men. According to human standards, men's standards, they are judged, they are condemned. Human beings say, wow, you guys blew it. You died like everyone else and you didn't enjoy this life while you could. But it's not the judgment of man that matters. Peter says next, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The one whose judgment ultimately matters is God. And God is very pleased with them. God is so pleased with their choice to obey. And as a result, God is going to raise them up to new life. He is going to give them reward and honor. They're going to enjoy the eternal favor of God. So they didn't blow it. They made the right choice. That's Peter's point. In the end, in the next life, we will be proven to be right and the world will be proven to be wrong. That's his point. Obedience is worth the price. Yes, obedience means sacrifice. Yes, obedience may bring ridicule, but it is worth the price because in the end, we will be proven right and they will be proven wrong because God is the God of the living and the dead and he will make all things right. So what Peter is helping us to understand is that if we want to pass with flying colors the judgment seat of Christ, the first thing that needs to be true of our lives is that we steadfastly resist temptation, no matter what it costs us. We obey God at any cost, just like Jesus did. That's what needs to be true of your life if you're to receive honor and reward at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, second characteristic that Peter brings for us, second thing is in verse seven. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. What Peter's saying to us in this verse is the second thing that needs to be true of your life if you are to pass the test of the judgment seat of Christ is you need to wear out your knees in prayer in this life. Your earthly life needs to be all about prayer if you want to be tested well by God. Now, there's actually two halves to this verse. The first and second half of the verse are joined by the word therefore. That tells you that the second half of the verse is a result or an application of the first half. The first half is a simple statement of fact. The end of all things is near. Peter's point is that day of judgment, that day of reckoning by God is coming sooner than you expect. Jesus could return at any moment and take us home. And and if he doesn't, still we may die and see him at any moment. 
It could be later today. My family had a pretty rough week this week. So a close friend of our family who uh, is my mom's age, we actually kind of grew up with their family. We spent a lot of time at their house. Uh, she died suddenly and unexpectedly this week of a stroke. It's boom, no, no preparation, no time. She was gone instantly. Now, the good news for me is I look at the list that Peter's giving us, and I believe she was prepared to meet her Savior. She was prepared for the test. That's the great news. But the reminder for us is God has not guaranteed you another second on this earth. You have no idea when you're going to see him. Could be 60 years from now. It could be tonight. You want to be ready to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. How do you do that? Well, therefore, so... Be of sound judgment and sober spirit. Those, those two phrases are actually the same idea. Peter is saying, if you want to be ready to meet your maker, you need to live life alert. You need to be alert and aware. You need to be spiritually aware of what's going on around you. You need to be spiritually aware that the end is coming, that it's coming soon. You need to be aware of the, of the spiritual battle that you face, that temptation is always knocking at the door. You need to be aware of spiritual warfare, that Satan is constantly looking for a way into your life to trip you up and destroy you. You need to constantly be practicing spiritual awareness. Not getting drunk with the things and the entertainment of this world, but constantly living in the awareness that the end is near. And that awareness leads you to do what? To pray. To pray without ceasing. Always to go before the Lord in prayer. To respond to the urgencies and difficulties of life by going to God in prayer. That's actually a really common theme throughout scripture. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 6. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. With this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Do you notice the repetition in this verse? Four times you've got the word all. Why? Because Paul's saying, always pray. Always pray. Make prayer a part of your daily activity. All the time you're going before the Lord, praying for all things, for all needs. You're always praying to God. You cannot spend too much time in prayer. Prayer should be the constant activity of our everyday lives. We should pray when we're alone. We should pray when we're together. We should pray when we're sorrowful. We should pray when we're joyful. We should pray when we want to. We should pray when we don't feel like it. We should always be about the business of prayer. Why? Well, James chapter 5, because the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Prayer is your access to the supernatural power of God. I don't know if you, if you see that, if you understand that. Prayer is the one activity you do every day where you get in touch with the omnipotent power of God. It is the most powerful activity in your life. Everything else pales in comparison to prayer. If you look at all of the great men and women throughout history, all of them understood that. Martin Luther is an interesting case. Guy lived a, a pretty stressful life, lots of stuff going on. He was being persecuted, he was being chased. And yet at one point in his life, he said, I have so much business to do today. I must make sure that I wake up early and spend the first three hours in prayer. Three hours in prayer. That's what the dude did every day. Hudson Taylor, the missionary who took the gospel to China, he said towards the end of the, his life, the sun has never risen on China that did not find me on my knees in prayer. Every day, they spent tons of time in prayer because they understood there's nothing more important than prayer. It's what gives me access to the omnipotent power of God, the power that can grow and heal and restore and strengthen and draw us close to God. Prayer has all the power you need for everything in life. There's nothing more important that you can do than prayer. So the life that God rewards, the life that passes the test of the judgment seat of Christ is a life that wears out your knees in prayer. It's, it's interesting. There's something funny here. You know, I, I think there's a lot of students who pray for God's help to pass a test. 
finals are coming up. Lots of you are going to be on your knees to pray. Interesting thing about the test that we face, the judgment seat of Christ, is actually prayer is the test. Did you catch that? If you pray, you pass. That's the nature of this test. If you pray, you pass the test. God wants us to spend our time in prayer. That's what he's looking for. Will we tap into his omnipotent power by spending our lives on our knees? It's the second thing that needs to be true of us if we want to pass the test of the judgment seat of Christ. Third thing that must be true of us found in verses 8 and 9. Peter says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. What Peter's telling us here is that the third characteristic or practice that must be true of our lives to pass the test of the judgment seat of Christ is that we must consistently love others unconditionally and sacrificially. Now, it's interesting. If you've been here all semester long, you know that back in chapter one, we talked at at great length about love. Peter had a ton to say back then about love, but love is so important to him that he's back again for seconds. He wants to deal with it again, and it's interesting how he prioritizes it. He starts out by saying, above all, love one another. Above everything else in your life, all of the good things in your life, all of the important things in your life, all of them pale in comparison to the importance of love. Love is the one thing that must go over all of our lives. It's the most important thing in terms of how we treat one another in life. Now, that again is another common biblical theme. Paul says in Galatians 5, 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that's the statement. What's the one word? Love. The whole law of God is fulfilled in the word love. The law of God was, was God's revelation that regulated how people were to treat one another. And Paul's saying all of those regulations can be summarized or actually really replaced with the one word command, love. If we love one another, that fulfills all of God's regulations for life. Jesus says in John 13, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus is saying the the one characteristic that marks us out as followers of Jesus Christ is not our knowledge and it's not our purity, it's our love for one another. When we love one another unconditionally and sacrificially, that's what marks us out to the world as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, that's not any kind of love that Peter has in mind. Notice it's, it's fervent love, that word fervent in Greek. It means it's love that perseveres. It's love that does not waver. It does not diminish. Similar thing Peter says at the end of that verse. It's love that covers over a multitude of sins. What, what that phrase means is that when you love someone, What it means to love without wavering is that when they hurt you, when they sin against you, you cover over that sin. You you don't dwell on it. You don't think about it. You cover over it. You remove it from sight. You don't think about it. Now, of course, there there are times when you have to lovingly confront someone. If they sin against you and it's, it's serious sin, it's habitual sin, or it's really destructive sin that's destroying their lives or someone else's lives, then you need to go to them and confront them in love. But most of the time, it's little stuff. Most of the time, it's small things that tick us off, that frustrate us. And those things we should just overlook. Dick Davison, one of the founding elders of this church, used to love to say that 95% of the things that frustrate us us in life, we should just overlook. Full 95% of the things that people do that hurt us, just overlook. Just just cover them up. Now, now that doesn't mean that you don't speak about it and just stew on it and get all bitter. That's not what covering up means. What covering up means is that you choose not to dwell on it. You choose not to think about it. You forgive it and forget it and set it aside. Peter's saying, if you want to love the way that God loves, you purposely choose to cover over one another's sins. 
Paul talks about that same idea at 1 Corinthians 13 when he's defining this love that God wants us to have. He says that the genuine love, God's type of love, it keeps no account of wrongs. That's accounting terminology. It means that I don't keep a list of all the things that you have done to me. I don't dwell on that list. I don't hold that list against you. When you hurt me, I forgive it. I set it aside and I never think about it again. That's love. That's what it means to unconditionally love. Then in the next verse, Verse 9, Peter gives us an illustration of unconditional and sacrificial love. An example, he looks at hospitality. Hospitality means that you open up your home for the good of others. And in the ancient church, in the early church, that was a very significant thing for two reasons. A first reason that hospitality was really important to them is they didn't have one of these. They didn't have a church building. There were no church buildings in the ancient world, so where did you meet? And whoever had the biggest house's house. <laughs> you met in whatever congregant had the biggest home. You met in their home. You went there. And, 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 and that was actually a big sacrifice by whatever family was opening up their home. Because they're welcoming in any believer, even those of different social classes, even those who are sick, dirty, oppressed. Whoever it is, you're welcoming everyone in. And it was really risky because Christianity wasn't popular. And your neighbors are going to begin to ask, um, hey, so on Sunday, why would you have all those people over? They can begin to figure out that you're a, you're a follower of Christ and that's going to mark your family for persecution. Pretty serious thing. Okay, so that's the first reason that hospitality was really needed in the ancient, in the ancient church. Second reason, because not only was there no church buildings, but there were also no hotels in the ancient world. If you were a believer and you were traveling for business reasons, uh, there was no place for you to stay commercially except uh, what they called inns. And inns were really just kind of sanctioned place for, places for prostitution to happen. And so they were really immoral. So if you're a believer trying to obey verses 1 through 6, you can't stay there. So you're completely dependent upon the grace and hospitality of strangers. Will believers who don't know you open their, the doors of their house and welcome you in? That's what Peter has in mind here. It's, it's picturing a, a, a believer who you don't know because travel was rare and you can't call up on the phone and you can't check the references. They come to town, they say, I need a place to stay and you open your house to them. Now, what really drives this home, if you really want to understand the depth of sacrifice of love that Peter's calling for here, you need to know that in the ancient world, their houses weren't as big as ours. Actually, in the city of Rome, the average family lived in a one or, if they're lucky, two-room apartment tiny little thing. We would call it an efficiency today. So imagine that your whole family, your, your, your wife or your husband, all your kids, you live in a one-room efficiency and a stranger comes to town who says, I'm a believer. I need a place to stay. And God is calling you to welcome them in. That means they're eating and sleeping right next to your spouse and kids. Are you willing to do it? That's what hospitality means. Hospitality requires incredible sacrifice. Will you sacrifice your comfort? Will you sacrifice your space and your stuff out of love for those in need? That's the idea here. And Peter, notice, he says, will you do it without complaint? Will you do it without complaining to your spouse, without complaining to your friends? Will you do it willingly, joyously? I have a, a close friend who will remain nameless, who he and his wife, they, they have a, a regular-sized home, three-bedroom home. It's totally filled with them and their kids. They, ha, they don't have any spare rooms. All the space is spoken for. And yet over the years, they, they have all these uh, guys and girls who they've discipled, who've moved away. When those guys and girls come back to town to visit, my friend always opens the doors of his home. I'm constantly amazed at the depth of their hospitality. And, and I know him. I talk to him all the time. So I know that it costs them. I know that it's a sacrifice. Somebody's sleeping on the floor when that happens. There's less room. It's more stressful in the house. And yet, without complaint, they joyously open the doors of their home because that's what love does. Love sacrifices my comfort, my space, my stuff for the good of my brothers and sisters in Christ. 
If you want to pass the test of the judgment seat of Christ, if you want to have reward and honor from God on that day that you stand before your Savior, you'll live a life that consistently loves others sacrificially and unconditionally. Finally, fourth characteristic that Peter lays out for us, verses 10 and 11. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What Peter's talking about in these two verses is spiritual gifts. And what he's challenging us to do, he's saying that if you want to pass the test of the judgment seat of Christ, you need to make the most of your spiritual gifts in this life in service to your fellow believers. You need to use your spiritual gifts as best as you can in the power of the Spirit to serve the body of Jesus Christ. Now, when Peter's talking about these spiritual gifts, what are those? Spiritual gifts are capabilities, supernatural capabilities, that God gives in grace to every believer for the service of the body of Christ. That's what spiritual gifts are, and Peter tells us a number of things about these spiritual gifts. First of all, he tells us that everyone has one. Notice how the verse begins, as each one has received a special gift, every one of you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have at least one spiritual gift, maybe multiple ones. Whether you know it or not, you have them. Now, these spiritual gifts are are called a stewardship. We are stewards of the gifts. That means that they don't belong to us. They, They are on loan from God. He has loaned them to us so that we can serve one another. And these gifts come to us out of the manifold grace of God. Literally, that means out of the multicolored grace of God. Our our God is a God who loves variety. He loves to be creative in in the giving of his gifts. And so there's a wide variety of gifts listed in Scripture. Now, Peter sums them all up in two broad headings, gifts of speaking, that would include teaching and the gift of wisdom and exhortation and evangelism and many others, and and the gifts of serving, that would include administration and giving and mercy and many others. Okay, so Peter sums them all up. There's a variety of gifts, but all the gifts require the power of God to work. I don't know if you noticed that there at the end in verse 11. If you speak, you must do it out of the words which God supplies. He has to give you the words to speak if you have the gift of evangelism or teaching or wisdom or encouragement. And if you serve, you must do it out of the strength which God supplies. If, if, you're, if you're a service-oriented person, it's got to be out of God's power that you serve. He's the one who empowers your spiritual gifts to make a difference. But here's the big thing I want you to notice. All spiritual gifts, no matter what spiritual gift you have, what is the purpose for which God gave you a spiritual gift? big purpose right there at the end of the passage, for the glory of God. That's what spiritual gifts are about. Not to glorify us, not to make us look good, not to make us feel good about ourselves, but to glorify God so that all the glory may to go to God and to his son, Jesus Christ. That's what they're about. So if I'm up here on the stage, I'm using my spiritual gift, which is teaching. If I'm doing that so that you will like me or so that you will say nice things about me, then I am wasting my time and yours because there's nothing behind it. There's no power behind it. Spiritual gifts are designed to glorify the giver, God, not us. Okay, so let's get real practical for a moment. I've just said that all of you, if you are believers in Jesus Christ, all of you have spiritual gifts. How can you make sure that you're making the most of those gifts in service to others so that you can receive reward and honor at the judgment seat of Christ? Well, a few practical steps. Number one, you need to know what your gifts are. 
If you're here and you're a believer and you couldn't answer the question, what spiritual gifts has God given you? That's the first thing you need to work on. And I would encourage you, we do have a class available, Discover My Ministry. It's actually meeting right now. So it just started today. You could start going next week at 11 o'clock. And, and that's okay. You can miss the first week. It's all right. It meets for four weeks, takes a break for Thanksgiving, and you will walk through and discover your spiritual gifts. Now, if you can't make that class, you're welcome to come talk to me or one of the other staff members. It would be a joy to sit down with you and help you discover what your unique gifting is. There's a number of things to help you do that. So come talk to one of us if you want to find out what your gifts are. Now, if you know your spiritual gifts, but you don't know how to use them, that's a significant thing. How do you develop and cultivate your spiritual gifts? Well, best way to do it is to find a believer who you look up to who has your same gifting. If you feel like maybe you have the gift of evangelism, look for a believer who's sharing the gospel a lot and go hang out with them. If you feel like maybe you have the gift of encouragement, you love to encourage other people, look for another believer who does that that's more mature than you and go hang out with them. Learn from them how to use that gift. Maybe you have the gift of hospitality. Actually, that is a gift. You love to open up your place. Find a more mature believer who does that and learn from them. How do you do that in a way that really blesses people? Attach yourself to another believer with your same gifting who's further down the road and learn from them. Be mentored by them so that you know how to use your gift well. Okay, so you know your gifts. You know how to use your gifts. Third thing, you have a place to use your gifts. If you're sitting out there and you know, like, this is my spiritual gift and, and I know how to use it, but I'm not using it because there doesn't seem to be a need or I don't know where to go with my spiritual gift, well, uh, please come talk to one of us on staff. Seriously, like that would be the most fun lunch to have that I can imagine. Somebody coming to me and saying, hey, I have the ability to do ministry. Just tell me what to do. That's a great lunch for me. So come meet with me. I would love to sit down with you and help you find a place here at the church or in the community where you can use your spiritual gifting to serve the body of Christ. That would be a joy to me. That's actually why we as staff are here at the church. Not so that we can do ministry to you, but so that we can equip you to do the work of ministry. So that we can develop your gifts and put you in the place where you can serve the glory of God. So if, if you are not currently using your spiritual gifts to serve other believers for the glory of God, come talk to me. Come talk to someone on staff. Come talk to a leader here. We would love to get you plugged in. Because if you are using your gifts to serve other believers for the glory of God, that's how you pass the test of the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, let's draw this together and wrap up. All of us face a test, and it's probably coming soon. It's probably coming sooner than we realize. It may be 60 years from now, or it may be tonight, that we stand before Jesus Christ for judgment. And he's going to look at our lives, and he's going to evaluate our lives. And, and the good news is, even though we don't know when that test is going to be, we know exactly what's expected of us. God has given us a study guide that will enable us to pass the test of the judgment seat of Christ. So what does God expect of us? Well, first and most important, let me be really clear about this. The most important thing is that you show up to the test. <laughs> most important thing is that you're there. And, and remember, judgment seat of Christ, it's in heaven. If you're there, then you're already in heaven. Okay, so how do you get to heaven to stand before Jesus Christ? Well, not by doing this stuff. I do want to be really clear with you guys about that. None of the four things on the board will earn you eternity in heaven. None of them will make you right with God. You cannot be right with God. You cannot have eternal life through works because it's not about works. It's about faith. If you want to be in heaven, if you want to spend eternity with God, if you want to have a relationship with him, all you must do is simply believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. 
You get to heaven, you have a relationship with God simply by trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection as complete payment for your sins. That's how you get there. But once you're there, the first thing that happens when you get to heaven is you're brought before the judgment seat of Christ and you give an account of your life. If you want to do well at that accounting, at that judgment seat, then what must be true of your life? Well, number one, you steadfastly resisted temptation, even when it cost you. You said no to sin, even when that involved sacrifice. Number two, you wore out your knees in prayer. You lived like you believed that prayer is the most powerful tool you have. You constantly spent time in prayer. Three, you loved others unconditionally and sacrificially. You gave up what's yours. You sacrificed your rights and desires, your space, your stuff to serve others in love. And finally, number four, you made the most of your spiritual gifts in service to others. You discovered them and cultivated them and used them to serve others and glorify God. If those four things are true of you, you will be well-rewarded and well-honored by your Savior when you see him. Now, my application for, for all of us as we go from here, I don't want this to be merely an academic thing. I want you to imagine that, that you're in, like for those of you who are students or if you can remember back to your days in college, imagine you're in the hardest class that you've ever taken and the professor steps up right before the final and you're terrified, you've you got to see and you're afraid you're going to fail and he stands up in front of you and he says, okay, I'm going to give you four things that are going to be on the test. If you know these four things, you will get an A. Do you think you'd write them down? Do you think that you would look at them and read them? and study them, maybe commit them to memory. Well, let me challenge you. This is even a better study guide that God's given us this morning. This is even a bigger test that we face. And God has told us explicitly, hey guys, here's what I expect of you. If you want to do well when you stand before me for judgment, this is what needs to be true in your life. So I encourage you guys, write these things down, adopt them as as a study guide for your life, and then take some time this week. And let me really encourage you to sit down with this list of four things and prayerfully go before the Lord, meditate on these things and ask him, God, where am I weak right now? Where am I not prepared to stand before you for judgment? Ask him to show you where you're weak and, and in whatever areas here that you are weak, resolve to make whatever changes are necessary to bring that area in alignment with the will of God. So whatever you have to give up, give it up to walk with God. Whatever you have to begin to do, take those first steps. You may need to find an accountability partner. You may need to talk to somebody and ask for help. You may need to begin to practice things like like prayer and like time in scripture, whatever it takes. Begin to take the first steps to grow in whatever of these four areas you're weak. We really encourage you guys, treat this like a study guide for the most important test you will ever face so that you'll be prepared. Because that's really our prayer. We don't know what day it will be that we stand before our Savior for judgment, but we do know we really want to be ready for it. Let's pray for that. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have not left us in the dark. Thank you that you have revealed in explicit clarity exactly what you expect of us as your children. Thank you so much, first of all, Lord, that you've made us your children by faith alone, that we don't work our way to you, we don't earn eternal life. You give it as an absolutely, completely free gift simply by believing that your son died for our sins and rose from the dead. And I pray for anyone in this room, Lord, who who hasn't believed that message yet, who's still trying to work their way to you, Lord, I pray that right now you would open their minds and help them to see the beauty and simplicity of the gospel, that they would understand that Jesus has paid for all their sins, has risen from the dead, and all they need to have or all they need to do to have eternal life is simply believe it, simply receive that gift. I pray that you would do that right now in their hearts, Lord. And for all the rest of us who have believed that message, Lord, we pray that now as your children, we would live lives that are honorable to you, that are pleasing to you. 
Thank you that as our good father, you've told us exactly what you expect. I pray that now we would go from here and we would practice these things. Lord, we pray that your spirit would convict us and challenge us, that you would teach us and train us to walk in righteousness and holiness. Lord, please help us to grow. We pray, Father, that for each and every one of us that we would be faithful to spend time with you this week reflecting on our lives and reflecting on this passage and on this list and and really just doing honest business with you, Lord. Meet us and, and open our eyes. Help us to grow to be more faithful to you, Lord. I pray that for every one of us in this room that you would do whatever it takes so that every one of us would pass the test of the judgment seat of Christ with flying colors. That's our hope. That's our prayer, Lord. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.